afternoon and welcome aboard flight 1043 nonstop from New York to LA. This is your captain speaking. We are expecting a smooth ride with clear skies and a sunny 78 degrees when we touch down in just a few hours. So sit back and relax, enjoy the flight, and no wait, never mind. I've just been notified that a passenger is experiencing a potential medical emergency. So is there a doctor on board? Welcome back to the EM Stud Podcast. It is that special time of the year when residency applicants are flying all over the country from interview to interview. And since you're racking up all those air miles, we thought, why not talk about what happens when medical care is needed in the air? So we turn to expert Dr. J.V. Nabel from Georgetown in Washington, D.C. Dr. Nabel, nice to have you on the podcast. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. It's, it's been it's a pleasure. So tell me, uh, for our listeners out there, who you are, where you did your training, that sort of stuff. Sure. So I uh, attended medical school at the University of Virginia and then did my residency training in emergency medicine at the University of Maryland in Baltimore. And then following that, I did an EMS fellowship also at the University of Maryland. And these days, I'm actually down in Washington, D.C. at Georgetown, uh, where I'm uh, the clerkship uh, co-director and uh, an assistant professor of emergency medicine. Well, that's great, JVs. Thanks for coming on the show today. So let me get this straight. We're at 30,000 feet. We're flying. We're enjoying uh, binging on Netflix, I guess. And all of a sudden, you get this interrupting call from the steward who says, is there a doctor on board? And I, that's happened to me once, and it's a sinking feeling. You're kind of looking around, hoping that somebody else will get up. Has it, really, has it happened? It's yeah, happened it's to happened too. to me, yeah. Did you get up? No, I pointed at my wife. <laughs> She's a much better doctor than I am. So I'm like, you go. You're the real Dr. Weeders. So, uh, yeah, but it's a sinking feeling. It's a sinking feeling. It is, so it is. how did you get this idea? What was the backstory? So it's actually happened to me several times. I want to say four or five times to me where it's actually happened, where I've been on a flight just minding my own business when all of a sudden the flight attendant call button or the uh, flight attendant bing, ding says, is there a doctor on board? And yeah, you're absolutely right. It is a sinking feeling because you're not, not expecting this at all. All of a sudden you're traveling, maybe you're on a business flight or you're just uh, going on your way to a vacation when all of a sudden you've got to actually work as a doc. So I, I have to be honest, when I travel, not that I travel that often, but I don't usually bring my CT scanner with me. <laughs> I mean, I, I feel a little uh, almost as if on an airplane, what in the world am I going to do? Exactly. Yeah, so that, that that's a fantastic question. And I think to understand, like, why uh, or where we are at this point in terms of the resources we have aboard aircraft, I think it's important to understand kind of the historical uh nature of how we got to where we are today in terms of how we deal with in-flight medical emergencies. Interestingly, back in the 1930s when airlines were first getting off the ground, quite literally, uh, almost every flight attendant was actually a nurse, and that was for two reasons. The first was because, unfortunately, airlines were crashing all the time, and so they wanted to have, the airlines wanted to have somebody on board who was able to have pretty good bedside rapport with the patients and able to calm an obviously anxious public. And the other reason, and it was kind of a secondary reason, was if there was ever some sort of medical emergency, there was always somebody who was medically trained who could help handle those situations. So for the first few years of the airline industry, this really wasn't as much of a problem. There was always somebody who was medically trained who could help assist with an in-flight medical issue. Uh, And then World War II happened, and basically that requirement that all 
flight attendants be nurses was dropped uh, because they needed to divert those resources to the war effort. And so for many years after World War II, we had no national governing policy in terms of how we dealt with in-flight medical emergencies. Uh, people were often reticent, uh, physicians were often reticent about volunteering their services because they didn't know what their legal ramifications were, and they also didn't know what resources were available to them. Uh, in fact, until the 1980s, the American Medical Association, when you became a member of the AMA, they provided in your membership starter kit a list of suggested items that you should bring aboard with you if you needed to fly, which included, interestingly, a benzodiazepine if, you know, there was somebody who uh, was having an acute stress reaction and, and other... It's at the uh, top of my list. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And, um, um, and so because of that, many people really didn't want to be volunteering because they had no idea what was going to happen. And so this culminates in 1998 with Congress passing the Aviation Medical Assistance Act. And this act does a couple things. The, the most important thing it does is it standardized the resources that were available aboard all U.S.-based airlines. And the other thing it does is it provides liability protection to both the airline itself and also to volunteering assisting providers. Wow, man, that's a really cool history. I had no idea. Yeah. That's great. So... They get the call. The steward says, we need some help. This is an emergency podcast. Hopefully you're going to stand up, right? What, what can you expect as far as what are some top complaints that passengers might provide? What is the top list of chief complaints? So that's, that's a fantastic question. So unfortunately, there's no uh, database for which or no reporting system to which all airlines must report these incidents to. That You're not mandated to report somebody having chest pain to the FAA. So there's no great centralized reporting system. But we do have some information from some research. Uh, and so one of them uh, was by Peterson and colleagues that was published in, I believe, 2013 in the New England Journal. And basically, what happens is, since not every airline or every flight has a doctor or healthcare provider aboard, every airline, at least in the United States and mostly throughout the world, contracts with a ground-based consultation service so that the flight crew can basically call somebody on the ground and say, hey, we've got this guy with chest pain. What do we do? And so Peterson and colleagues basically uh, queried the database of one of these ground-based consultation services, which provides approximately uh, 10% or provides these services to approximately 10% of global airline traffic. And over a two and a half year period, there was almost 12,000 calls for service. That's only 10% of global airline traffic. Now in terms of the most common complaints, uh, those included syncope, respiratory issues and cardiovascular issues. Now again, this is you know certainly uh, not a um, comprehensive database uh, and it's subject to selection bias and reporting bias because if there's a doctor on board, some of these events might not get reported or if there's something simple that gets handled on board, it might not get reported uh, to one of these ground-based consultation service. But in terms of uh, the things that happen aboard, these are things that we as emergency physicians see all the time, right? So syncope, cardiac issues, respiratory issues, GI issues, we are more than capable of handling these situations. At the time I got called, it was a 400-pound woman who passed out on the toilet. Oh, boy. Yeah. So uh, let's see. What, what kind of equipment can one expect to receive on a flight? What resources? I mean, Nate said, you know, there's no CT scanner. How am I going to diagnose? <laughs> I can't get an EKG. I mean, call somebody. I don't know what to do without a CT scanner. I mean, I'm kind of lost. Yeah. yeah so do. What, what do we expect to have as equipment? What's fairly standard. Right. So so the Aviation Medical Assistance Act basically required the FAA to standardize the equipment aboard U.S.-based airlines. So if you are flying United or American or Southwest, 
you will basically be presented with an emergency medical kit if you request one. And on that kit are your standard assessment supplies. So you have blood pressure cuffs, uh, a stethoscope, but good luck being able to use one when it's really high up and you've got the <laughs> engines Yeah, I, that's what they wanted me to do. They wanted exactly. me to check this person's blood pressure, and I couldn't hear a damn thing. Yeah. Oh, with your ears popping. No, yeah, I mean, yeah, you've got a stethoscope on, I couldn't hear anything. So I had to do kind of a manual feeling yeah. palp yeah. MAP. Yeah, absolutely. And you, so you can palpate a blood pressure. Uh, they also have uh, IV fluids. Uh, so you can start start an IV and give a bolus of fluids. And then in terms of medications, so they've got aspirin, nitroglycerin, Benadryl, both PO and IV forms. Uh, there is epinephrine, not an EpiPen, but epinephrine, uh, both 1 to 1,000 and 1 to 10,000. There's atropine. Uh, so basically you're very basic emergency medical supplies. There's also uh, splinting equipment and also bandages as well. AED or there is an AED. So uh, and the number of AEDs that's uh, aboard the aircraft is actually determined by the minimum number of passengers or the maximum number of passengers. Uh, so if you're on a larger aircraft, you'll have access to up to four AEDs. I will say, though, if you're opening up your fourth AED, that's probably <laughs> a good indication that you should probably ask to divert the aircraft. So, Do they have that drug that begins with a D? Dil- dil- no. Dilaudid? No. They, okay. No. The devil's not on the plane. Yeah. Yeah. The, no, the only analgesic that's required is basically a Tylenol. Hmm. Interesting. Yes. Interesting. So I can imagine, uh, you know, being called up to the scene of uh, an emergency in the middle of the airline. They bring you this little kit that has a few little drugs in it. I mean, is you, now you and I go back to uh, the time when we used to do EMS. I mean, is Absolutely, it yeah. is it similar to that in the sense of sort of what resources you have, what's available? Right. So so these are not meant to be flying clinics. So every year, every some interest group petitions the FAA or Congress to say, hey, you should add an EpiPen or you should add this great drug. Uh, but the reality is that the FAA realize that, realizes that these kits are really only meant to be temporizing and not meant to be creating an acute care clinic up in the skies. Um, so in some way, that this is, this is really a form of austere medicine. Um, so even more austere than uh, our paramedics or EMS colleagues uh, have to function in, this is really meant uh, to be a very austere type of environment. And so you may have to think outside, outside of the box in terms of how, how to handle this. There was a case report back in the 90s where basically a patient was experiencing what the orthopedic surgeon aboard the aircraft assumed to be a tension pneumothorax. Uh, and it was on a British Airways flight. Uh, and on board, he basically had to improvise how to decompress this. And so basically he used a, uh, uh, a coat hanger as a trocar. He used a Foley that somebody happened uh, to be carrying as the chest tube. And he used the uh, one of the airplane bottles of alcohol uh, for aseptic technique. That is crazy. Yeah, and basically inserted the trocar with the, uh, with the coat hanger into the patient's chest uh, to basically do a chest tube. Um, now, if you're flying on a U.S.-based airline, so that was on British Airways, uh, Airway, uh, you actually do have access to a 14-gauge angiocath if it's long enough to be able to penetrate. Wow. Wow. I can't imagine actually having the guts to <laughs> stick a coat hanger into somebody's chest. That sounds wild. Yes. Um, so I, I guess I have to ask then, what about liability and um, documentation? I mean, that needs to happen, I guess. Yeah, so that's that's a great question. So. So if you're flying on a U.S.-based airline, uh, the Aviation Medical Assistance Act does provide you with liability protection as long as you're acting in good faith and without gross negligence. Like coat hangers and... 
So coat hangers, probably, <laughs> probably okay. Um, but, uh, but the idea is basically you cannot be acting in uh, grossly negligent. So if you're intoxicated, you know, grossly intoxicated, you know, after all, we're often on flights if we're on travel, so you're not expecting to be doing patient care. Uh, but if you're intoxicated, you probably shouldn't uh, be doing any sort of patient care. Absolutely. Um, and so, uh, so the first thing you should probably ask yourself before you volunteer services is, am I in a position to actually be doing functioning at the level of a physician? Uh, and so the, the Act provides you with federal liability protection as long as you're acting in good faith without gross negligence. The other thing is you have to provide care that's similar to your training. So if you're a dermatologist and you've never put in a chest tube, you probably shouldn't be doing this uh, for the first time aboard an aircraft. And now that goes for medical students too, right? It's sort of expected that you are operating as a physician with <laughs> a medical license. So, so that, all of you on interviews, uh, no chest tubes. So that's a, that is a fantastic point. So the Act only covers licensed providers, and the Act further identifies what those are. So those are licensed physicians, nurses, and EMS providers. So if you are a medical student, unfortunately, this Act does not apply to you, so it will not provide you with liability protection. At the same time, I think there could be an argument that you probably have an ethical obligation to assist. So if somebody's in cardiac arrest, you probably shouldn't be stepping back and not doing CPR if sure, you know how sure. to do it. So uh, that, that's one thing to consider. We had a student who, during her EM clerkship, was doing interviews and witnessed a arrest in a major airport. And it was the week after we did our How to Do Damn Good CPR lecture that we wow. used to do. Timely. <laughs> and she ran this code like a boss. They Fantastic. got ROSC back. Wow. They shocked this wow. dude out of VFib, and they transported him to the hospital. And it was, it was really kind of a crazy thing. So this can happen to anybody. Oh, it does. Sure. Sure. Scary. So, JV, tell me, I mean, we're really high up. Right. We have compressed air. We're in an austere environment, as you pointed out, with limited resources. But what about the physics, the physiology, the altitude, oxygen levels? Tell us about some unique perspectives that might be different than our emergency department. That, that, that's a great point. So you are basically flying at an altitude of 30,000 feet in an enclosed aluminum tube. And so certainly you have to consider the environment. And the environment also can contribute uh, to the development of an acute medical uh, emergency. And uh, you, we can certainly take this back all the way to college physics and college chemistry. So you may remember uh, Dalton's Law. So Dalton's Law says that the total pressure of a gas mixture is equal to the sum of the partial pressure of the component gases. Um, wait, and wait, did you, did you just bring that back all the way from college? <laughs> did you seriously remember uh, yeah, that you remember? We took college together. You remember that? I, I don't, wow. That's legit. Yeah, I just, yeah, yeah, I actually went to class. <laughs> sorry, sorry. So... And now, as you go up in altitude, the total pressure of, of gas goes down, which means that the partial pressure of oxygen must go down with it. Uh, and so that certainly has ramifications, for example, if you have underlying lung disease or congestive heart failure, because the partial pressure of oxygen goes down as you go up in altitude. Now, you're not breathing in air that's equivalent to 30,000 feet, because after all, all the uh, airlines do pressurize their cabins. Uh, for a variety of reasons, they're not pressurized to sea level. They're actually pressurized to somewhere between six to 8,000 feet. Now, at 8,000 feet, you're still breathing in um, uh, thin air. At 8,000 feet, your alveolar concentration of oxygen is around 59. 
which if you compare that to sea level, is certainly not ideal. Now, for most healthy passengers, that's not going to be a problem. Uh, but if you have, for example, COPD or congestive heart failure, uh, breathing in air that's only equivalent to 59 uh, at, in terms of your alveolar concentration of oxygen is certainly, certainly not ideal. And then the other one is, uh, you may remember Boyle's Law, which says that the volume sure, occupied by sure, gas yeah, is sure. indirectly proportional to the pressure of that gas. Uh, so basically, as you go up in altitude and pressure goes down, the volume of a gas expands. And it's for this reason uh, that, for example, a really small pneumothorax at ground all of a sudden becomes intention pneumothorax when you go up in altitude. Mm. And it's for this reason why uh, passengers or patients who have had recent, say, bowel surgery or intracranial surgery or eye surgery, they're recommended not to fly in the immediate aftermath of their surgery because all of a sudden all that air can expand in the middle of flight. So I guess if you get a tension pneumothorax, you could actually just descend, and that might make things better? You could. That is one potential, a potential way to uh, reduce uh, the, the pneumothorax. It's a lot less fun than a coat hanger, though. <laughs> <laughs> so, JV, you're an expert on this. You've published in this area. What stories do you have for us about uh, a unique experience in dealing with this in a real Sure. So I was recently on a uh, trans-Atlantic um, flight uh, when I was called uh, to assist with an in-flight medical event. Uh, somebody asked, is there a doctor on board? And actually, there were four physicians aboard. However, I was the only one uh, who happened to be carrying my, my license, and so I was the only one. Is this like a bad joke, like a dermatologist, <laughs> a podiatrist, and an emergency physician walking no, to a no, bar? No, no. Actually, there were several. There was uh, an, an internist uh, and then two other specialties. Uh, and unfortunately, there was, I was the only, or, well, fortunately or unfortunately, I was the only one who was carrying my license, and so they, they, I, was only, I was the only one that the airline allowed to touch the uh, passenger. Uh, and so basically what happened is there was somebody who was in the lavatory who had passed out. Um, he was hypotensive, ended up having to start an IV. Uh, we were only about half an hour to an hour away from, from landing, so we ended up not uh, requesting diversion. Um, which brings up an interesting uh, question. A lot of people ask, well, whose role is it to divert the aircraft? And ultimately, as healthcare providers, all we can do is make a recommendation. We can't ask for the flight to be diverted or demand it. Uh, it's really up to the captain. It's a very complicated decision in terms of diverting aircraft because oftentimes the closest airport is not necessarily an appropriate airport, and it's, uh, it's actually pretty expensive to divert uh, a fully loaded uh, aircraft, and so there's a lot of logistical issues that, that, that come into play as well. So don't pull a Wesley Snipes and, like, take the plane <laughs> down on yourself. And, no, that, that, yeah. that's not on you. Gotcha, gotcha. But so if you do that, I, I, are you communicating with the ground crew too, I guess? So you, mi you might. Uh, most. Uh, so when I've um, volunteered my services, it's uh, usually been with the, uh, the flight crew. So usually, so some, sometimes the pilot or captain actually comes back and asks, uh, so what's going on and what do you think uh, we need to do? Man, this is such a fascinating topic and something that I'm still freaked out about, <laughs> even after reading your article and talking to you. I don't feel any better. I'm still pretty nervous about flying home right now. I'm like almost that fate may come and somebody may have a medical emergency on the way back to Texas. It, you know, eventually it will. I mean, you say yeah. the statistics are, are on the side that this will eventually happen. In fact, on, on long-haul flights, 80% uh, of the time there's a physician on board. So if it hasn't happened to you already, it probably will eventually happen to you. You know, and I think, you know, this is these, the, these types of situations that make the specialty of emergency medicine pretty unique, right? So when somebody's out in public and they say, help, I need a doctor, usually they're not looking for a radiologist or even an internist. They're usually looking for somebody with our training and our expertise. So I think, uh, I think uh, we can certainly handle these situations with confidence. 
Wow, right on. Yeah. Anyone, anytime, any place. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Great. Cool. Well, JV, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Oh, my pleasure. Such a, such a interesting, unique topic. JV, if our listeners want to get in touch with you, what are some unique ways? Uh, you have a Twitter handle or an email they could reach you at? Sure, they can reach me at my email. It's jose.nabel, so J-O-S-E dot N like Nancy, A, B as in boy, L-E at georgetown.edu. Well, great. Next time we have an in-flight emergency, I'll be emailing you. Thanks again to Dr. Nabel for such an awesome interview. I just heard him talk about this very same topic at ASAP. Really, really cool stuff. Don't forget you can find more episodes and our show notes over at www.cdemcurriculum.com. And if you're on Twitter, you can follow Dr. Scott Weeders at eMedCoach and myself, Dr. Nate Lewis at ERDRN8. That's it for this episode. And until next time, stay safe on your travels and good luck on all those interviews.